There's always a sense of uh, mystery and something special, of anticipation and moment in the beginning of something new, a new semester, a new academic year. There's something very special about beginning a series of lectures in the classroom. There's something very powerful about sitting with people in a classroom and participating with others in a class, recognizing that there is a synergy and there is a joy in learning together that just would not happen if we were not together. The word convocation just means that we are gathered together and this is just a small a small hint of the total enrollment at Boyce College and Southern Seminary this term. That's the way it is these days with any particular moment in time. But nonetheless, it's just a good reminder of the fact that even as we are a part of a great host of witnesses, we're also part right now of a great, a great family of learners, teachers and learners together and all the learners and all the teachers learning together the great truths of the Christian faith, studying the Word of God together, thinking about teaching, considering the most urgent issues of Christian ministry. You know, when you think about all of this, you recognize that this is a very special moment, and I dare say this is a very special place. C.S. Lewis once spoke of learning in wartime. And he spoke even then of the great British universities as oases in a conflagration that was raging. And he asked the question as to whether this is even legitimate while war is going on. And the Christian church has understood, yes, it's not only legitimate, it's necessary, even as a war is going on. And it will be that way until Jesus comes. We pray it will be that way here until Jesus comes and that we will remain faithful. I want to invite you to turn with me to the prophet Isaiah in chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40, we'll look just at the first five verses and make reference to the next three. The great prophet in chapter 40 declares, comfort Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now I dare say, of all the prophetic texts in the Old Testament, that is one that you hear not only verbally, but musically. And the reason for that is pretty well understood. It is the opening of Handel's Messiah. 1741, 
Georg William Friedrich Handel. But he didn't call together the words. He wrote the music. The libretto, as it was known at the time, that is the text, is entirely a scripture. There is not one word of the Messiah that is not directly drawn from scripture. It's narrative in form. If you have ever heard the Messiah or perhaps participated in a singing of it, it is the great Christian theme of promise and fulfillment. A part of the promise is announcement. Charles Jennings started putting this together in an effort to assert the Orthodox Christian faith. That was his concern, to summarize scripture. Messiah is not only an oratorio, it is intended as a great statement of Christian confession, drawn only from scripture itself and then put to music. Of course, his musical partner, Handel, had to take on the responsibility and Handel took it on with an eagerness that is now historic and a music so majestic that there has hardly ever been a season when Handel and his Messiah have not resonated. But it's not just the tunes, although the tunes are absolutely majestic. We know it's the words. The opening words after the opening overture, the first words heard are, comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, says your God. Speak softly, tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended. Now, we are trained to read the Old Testament with gospel eyes and to understand that we are looking at words that had a context in the 8th century in the promise of God, in his fulfillment of his promises to Israel, but there is a promise beyond, and that is indeed the promise of the Messiah and the arrival of the Messiah. Well, here we see the majesty of promise and fulfillment in words that still leap out at us, not primarily because they were sung in London in 1741, but because they were spoken by the Lord through the prophet. And that is actually the point. I, I mean specifically to look intensely at verse 5. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. That's the determinative issue. The mouth of the Lord has spoken it. The, the prophet has received the word, and has declared it to God's people. Now we know that God has no body, but he has a mouth and he speaks it. He reveals words and, and the words are heard by his creatures. In this context, in this context through the prophet, he spoke words to his covenant people. And they are words of covenant promise. And they point to covenant fulfillment. Israel could be secure in knowing that rescue was coming and that in one sense the majesty of the one true and living God was arriving once again because the mouth of the Lord had spoken it. I have so often mentioned that in one very real sense, theological rescue came to me 
by Francis Schaeffer's little book, He is There and He is Not Silent, that became so determinative for my thinking that I've used both parts of that title in book titles just to bear a sense of thanksgiving. Those are the two big issues we have to confront first and foremost. And certainly as we begin a new semester and we're thinking about new courses of learning and we're thinking about the dangerous, combustible, revolutionary context of teaching and learning. And when we think about what we are teaching and what we are learning here, well, the combustibility just becomes far more apparent. We can only do this because of two truths. He is there and he is not silent. This is at least a part of the confidence I hope to impart to every Christian I ever meet. This is a part of the confidence that I certainly mean to try to, to pass from one heart to other hearts, even in the beginning of an academic term, at a college and a seminary unreservedly, unabashedly committed to the faith once for all delivered to the saints. We only know what it is because he is there and he is not silent. We only have a clue what Christianity is because he is there and he is not silent. We have no way of knowing what is right belief and wrong belief except for this. He is there and he is not silent. We only know what to teach. We only know what to accept. We, we only know what to convey to others and we know only what is right to give to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in the feeding of the flock because he is there and he is not silent. Both of those sentences are absolutely necessary because if he was there but silent, we would know nothing. But he's there and he isn't silent. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. You know, otherwise, I would have nothing to say and nothing worthy of you to hear. We would have no idea what to teach. We'd have no idea what was right and what was wrong, what is true and what is false. We'd have no idea what is important and unimportant. There would be no Israel if God did not speak. There would be no church if God did not speak. But in these days, he has spoken through his son. And the son is the fullness of his glory. And in the son, the father speaks redemption. Here in this passage, it's about the prophetic word. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And you know, this is one of those places in which just in the providence of God, I'm unspeakably thankful that back in the 18th century when Jennings and Handel conspired in Messiah, I'm just thankful that even in their musical presentation, the emphasis at the very beginning is that the only reason we have any confidence to know, much less to sing such things, is because the mouth of the Lord has spoken. It's not just that the Lord has spoken, but the mouth of the Lord has spoken. It, <laughs> that's good to know, 
We better know what it is. Well, in the context here again, it's the prophetic voice. It's Isaiah. It's the prophecy given from the Father through his prophet. But it's more than that. Look at the three verses that continue. In verse 6, a voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Now there's a confidence. It's not just that the mouth of the Lord has spoken it, but because God is God, when he speaks it, it is eternally true. The grass will wither and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Decades ago, I was visiting in a great church of another denomination. And uh, they had just a stunningly beautiful sanctuary. And uh, it was a representation of a Protestant and indeed a Puritan uh, place of worship. Had a very high pulpit right in the center of the room. Everything stark white, much like what you will see in the broadest chapel. Everything stark, just intended for there to be no color in terms of even the red and the, the scarlet and the blue. Everything just there for one thing and that one thing being preaching. Just wood, just painted wood, that's all. And that's why so many in other Christian traditions think our buildings are just so boring. It's because it's mostly just a bunch of painted wood. But on the front of the pulpit were these words, the word of the Lord will stand forever. The word of the Lord endures forever. There were, there's no other word you saw in the entire building, just those words. And you know what? It makes sense. If you're going to choose one word about what would happen in that room and what should happen in that pulpit, that, that one phrase would be this phrase. And that is based upon the previous phrase of our concern this morning. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So as we are beginning a new academic term, I just call us in this brief time we have together to consider the centrality of divine revelation, the certainty of divine revelation, and that great climax of divine revelation, which is the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are able to do what we do here for only one reason, and, and that is that the word of God is. The word of God stands. The word of God does endure forever. Otherwise, we have no idea what to teach. Our curriculum would be nothing but a vapor. Frankly, it would be, by the very definition, artificial. It, uh, it might be accidentally helpful the way, even in other educational contexts, instruction may be accidentally helpful because it accidentally corresponds with truth. We don't want to accidentally correspond with truth. We just want to teach truth. But look, we're incompetent to figure out what that is. 
it has to be revealed to us, but the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. And, and so we don't apologize for the centrality of the Bible within the curriculum of the institution. We don't apologize for the fact that if we didn't do anything else, we would do biblical studies. If we did nothing else, we would just turn to the word of God and seek together to learn the word of God and, 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 and to draw everything we know and everything we believe from the word of God and then figure out how to convey the word of God to God's people. We, would, we just have to start with the Bible because we have no other place to start. So we really can never apologize for the centrality of Scripture. And that points to something else. In a very real way, even when we speak appropriately of every part of our curriculum representing the totality of confessional truth insofar as we are given light, and, and, and in, insofar as we speak of the totality of the curriculum as being representative of the Christian worldview, we just have to look each other in the eye and say, that's not enough. That's, that's, it's not enough. We actually must submit everything we teach, everything we know, everything we think to a scriptural test. Now, we hope that an understanding of the Christian worldview is so saturated and structured by Christianity and in particular by the scripture that it would be so. But it's just a reminder to us that there are people who could say Christian worldview, but it'd be independent of scripture. And if we're not careful, it could even be contrary to scripture. We have to keep coming back again and again and again to what did the Lord say? And that covers the entirety of the curriculum. It's not as if biblical studies is where that takes place and where it ends. Our responsibility is to make certain that what the Lord has spoken permeates everything we think, everything we teach, every seminar we lead, every discussion we guide. And, and then the certainty of the Word of God. The certainty of divine revelation is so absolutely necessary that we have to remind ourselves periodically that this is the one thing of which we are sure. It's a biblical theme. The one thing of which we are sure is that God is and that he speaks, that he has spoken, and that all that he has spoken is true. We just have to come back to that again and again and again. He, he exists and he speaks. He has spoken in his word, and all that he's spoken is true. Because if any part of that train of thought gets derailed, if, if, if any part of it is not in sequence, then we're in big trouble. Now, it's interesting right now, even, even in yesterday's headlines, lots of controversy over what's to be taught in schools. You even have two governors in the United States throwing bricks at one another over an AP course. Now, you just think of all the odd things that could ever happen in history. Two American governors, state governors, in a public debate about one class, but here we are, and there it is. But everybody knows that whatever is taught really is important. The one common assumption in all of this is that we better pay attention to what's being taught. And one of the issues we have to face here is that there's no safe place. And in particular, the closer you get to teaching the things that pertain to God, as the reformer said, the closer you get to the things that pertain to God, the higher the stakes, the greater the danger. Now, also, the greater the necessity. But this is dangerous stuff. 
And if we are not certain of divine revelation, then we've got to figure out what in the world we would think about God. What in the world we would say about Christianity. But thankfully, that is not our task. Our task is to respond with the certainty of divine revelation. And then we look to the climax of divine revelation in Jesus Christ. Again, God, many times and in many ways, has spoken, but in these days, he has spoken through his son. This is not just a Bible institution. This is not just an institution that honors that the mouth of the Lord has spoken what Isaiah is given here and gives to us in Isaiah chapter 40. We point to the fulfillment of all God's promises in Christ. It's not just that the Lord has given us his inscripturated word without which we would know nothing, but that he has given us the incarnate word, the Lord Jesus Christ, and thus we preach Christ. Without apology, we preach Christ. That is the great theme. And once again, it has to be the theme of every class, the theme of every lecture, and the, the theme of every program of a college and seminary committed to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. As, uh, as we begin this new term, I want to remind us of another historical occasion. And this refers to a 100th anniversary of a book. That book is Christianity and Liberalism by a man by the name of Gresham Machen. Gresham Machen taught at Princeton Theological Seminary in especially the first decades of the 20th century. He was a man who was first very attracted to German theological scholarship. He studied under Wilhelm Hermann. Uh, Karl Barth and others had the same experience. Machen was completely enraptured by Hermann's lectures. So much so that Machen said that what he wanted was just a portion of, of the Christian fervor of Wilhelm Hermann. Later, upon reflection in his own study in the Word of God and his own grounding in confessional Christianity, he began to recognize that what had so attracted him in that German liberal context was emotion and fervor and, yes, a, a determined effort to try to get at the essence of Christianity. But at the end of the day, that essence was not found in scriptural Christianity. It was in God's providence that Gresham Machen had had that experience uh, to, to understand the attraction of this new, updated Christianity as was propagated by the Protestant liberals there in the German universities in particular. It was good that he knew what that was, and it was good in God's providence that he understood the attraction of it. He joined the faculty at Princeton Theological Seminary, and by that time, he saw the dangers of it. But, you know, it seemed pretty safe there, especially in the last decades of the, of, of the 19th century, in the early decades of the 20th century, because Machen, along with others, had the confidence that his denomination, the Presbyterian Church, it would stay strong even as theological liberalism would, uh, would infect especially Europe and starting with, 
what they simply referred to as the German universities. But increasingly, Machen and his colleagues at what was called Old Princeton began to understand that this was not a heretical, dangerous system of thought that would stay on the other side of the Atlantic. There were developments such as the Briggs trial, some of you will know about, and the, and the Briggs case, also in the same church. There's confusion and, and debate. But the assumption was that the people and the ministers of the church would stand fast once the time of challenge came. Gresham Machen wrote his book, Christianity and Liberalism, in 1923. And by the way, it was released in February of 1923. So we really are standing at the 100th anniversary. In order to try to issue a call to the faithful in the Protestant churches of the United States against this encroaching liberalism. And it was already so present within his denomination. And, and as a matter of fact, just in terms of the spread of ideas, it is, it is very difficult to explain how those liberal theological uh, schools could gain so much influence in religious circles so fast. The main point in Christianity and liberalism is this. That when you look at Christianity and liberalism, you're not looking at two forms of Christianity. You're looking at Christianity and some other religion. Whatever liberalism is, he said, in its denial of Christ, it is just not Christianity. He said this, what the liberal theologian has retained after abandoning to the enemy one Christian doctrine after another is not Christianity at all, but a religion which is so entirely different from Christianity as to belong in a distinct category. Now, that's the kind of theological clarity that at times the church just absolutely must have. Because what Machen wrote is, I believe, undeniably true. And it was undeniably true in 1923. Now, because of the anniversary and a writing project I have on this, I've been going back into all kinds of material, primary source material, letters and all the rest. And I will tell you, it's kind of like, a lot of research, it's a pit into which you can fall because one letter leads to another letter and one reference leads to another reference and frankly, they're all interesting, especially in the white hot controversy of the, the battle within the Presbyterian church at the time. But I was reminded of something and frankly, you reach a certain point where having dealt with these things for years, you're not really sure if you knew this before. I'm not sure if I knew this before, but I was reminded of it or learned it anew. What I had forgotten is that the most important liberal journal in the United States of liberal Protestantism, the Christian century? It agreed with Majin. So even as those in the kind of muddled middle tried to say, that's an exaggeration, you're just speaking too far. At least the editors of the Christian century said, you know, <laughs> he's right. On January the 3rd of 1924, the Christian Century stated this, the differences between fundamentalism and modernism are not mere surface differences which can be amiably waved aside or disregarded, but they are foundation differences, structural differences, amounting in their radical dissimilarity almost to the differences between two distinct religions, two worldviews, two moral ideals, two sets of personal attitudes of clash, and it's a case of 
ostrich-like intelligence blindly to deny and evade the searching and serious character of the issue. Christianity, according to fundamentalism, is one religion. Christianity, according to modernism, is another religion. Christianity is hardly likely to last much longer, half fundamentalist and half modernist. It is not merely the aggressiveness of fundamentalism that is forcing a choice. It is the inherent nature of the issue itself. Now, don't be thrown off by the use of the word fundamentalist here, because in this case, it just means orthodox Christianity. That's all it means. Uh, it, was a, it was a word used as an epithet. And by the way, the fundamentalist, because of a series of tracts called the fundamentals, had basically just adopted the word. That did not mean at this time such an attitudinal distinction as much as what was recognized here and was recognized by Machen, and that is that you're looking here at two different religions. One of them is actually Christianity, and the other one is not. There's another real interesting twist. At least it's interesting to me. I hope it's interesting to you. Machen made the point that the modernists, as they called themselves, the liberals, thought they were doing something completely new. And, and he particularly poked fun at so many of those at places like Union Theological Seminary, but also in uh, some of the other divinity schools and seminaries who were talking about this new theology. And then Majin said, you know, if you read it, you discover it's not new. It's just Unitarianism. And uh, so that also summoned a response from the American Unitarian Association. They said, we've read Dr. Machen's book and we are also in total agreement with him that these Protestant liberals are not Christians, they're Unitarians. You are free to join. <laughs> All that to say, I am also extremely indebted to Machen. I was a seminary student when I read Christianity and Liberalism, and I recognized that really is the, the stark alternative. It's Christianity or Liberalism. If, if you deny that Christ is the very Son of God, very God of very God, if, if you deny the necessity of substitutionary atonement, if you, if you deny the miracles and you deny that the Bible is the Word of God, then you're not in a different denomination. You're not in a different school of theology. You're in a different religion. And Machen's concern was, the great danger is, they still call themselves Christians. They still call themselves Presbyterians. I bring this to our attention today just because I think this, this is not just a providential coincidence that this opening convocation, and by the way, we were delayed into February just to make this perfect. So there you go. It's the very same month to a hundred years since the emergence of Christianity and liberalism. And you look at that and you go, you know, that's one of those crystallizing moments in the history of the church that we just need to remember because a hundred years later, it is all the more evident that Machen was absolutely right. I mean, Machen, and it, by the way, his, his main uh, alter ego, his main theological opponent at that time in the national debate was a Baptist who was in a Presbyterian pulpit. His name was Harry Emerson Fosdick. And he had denied just about every major Christian doctrine. And as Machen said, if he hasn't denied one, it's because he doesn't know it yet. 
But uh, Fosdick and Machen had this titanic battle going on. And, you know, you, you look at this and you recognize that the whole world thought Fosdick was winning. Machen was hoping to wake up the church in 1923. But in a sense, it was already too late in his beloved Presbyterian denomination. hundred years later, we just have to look back and say, you know, what he said is not less obviously true in 2023. It's more obviously true. Let me tell you, you go back and look at these primary source materials and, and here, here's this interesting thing. I did this by definition can't happen. I don't want you to know I'm conceding that right up front. I can have no conversation with Harry Emerson Fosdick, but I would love to show Harry Emerson Fosdick what his denomination, that is of the, of the church he was serving, has been debating of late. <laughs> Let's just say that those theological liberals in 1923 were not trying to save the Presbyterian church for drag queen story hour. But you know what? If you unleash Christianity from Scripture, you have unleashed Christianity from Scripture. And then it is what the lawyers say is a parade of the horribles. All the evidence just comes piling in. So I make this reference to that book and its publication 100 years ago, not to say, look, isn't that an interesting coincidence, but to say, you know, looking back, it is clear that the distinction that Machen made, it's a distinction that has to stand. It's a judgment that he made, and that judgment tragically has been verified over and over again. There's a warning that he issued, and for his own denomination, he had issued it perhaps too late. But the fundamental issue here is not what Machen wrote in 1923, although it was such a vital, necessary, and prophetic word. The most important thing is that God has spoken. And our right response is to look at the issues starkly set before us and recognize there is no alternative. It is scriptural Christianity or no Christianity. It is biblical theology or it's no theology. It's all the scripture teaches on the basis of the fact that God has spoken or we've got nothing to say because we know nothing. But you know what? We're not here because we know nothing. So let's just state that in conclusion, as we draw this to a close, thanks be to God, we're not here because we know nothing, but because we know Jesus Christ is Lord. We're not here because we know nothing, but because we know the faith once for all delivered to the saints. We're not here because we know nothing and we teach nothing, but because we have been given in scripture the whole counsel of God. And because we have been given an assured true word and an assignment that a thousand lifetimes could never exhaust, we will not get the job done this term. The preacher will not get the job done even when he dies. The imperative of the gospel 
And the work of the ministry will endure beyond us. And I say that to the youngest among us, if the Lord tarries beyond us, to generations yet to come. Our task is to be a bridge. A bridge of conviction, a bridge of teaching, a bridge of theological education, a, a, a bridge of learning, a bridge of Bible and preaching and exposition and confession. To generations of the Lord tarries not yet born. It's good when we gather together on a morning like this to be reminded of what's at stake. And then to remember the authority by which we do anything for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. Let's pray. Father, we are just so thankful for all you've given us in your word. We pray that we will, as a school, be faithful above all things to you, to the gospel, to Christ, to the scriptures, to the church. Consecrate us, we pray, in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.